This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patented Stanley rubric to our second Akira Kurosawa film, and possibly his best in the 1950 classic, Rashomon. Written and directed by Akira Kurosawa, co-written by Shinobu Hashimoto, starring Toshiro Mifune, Masayuki Miro, and Takashi Shimura. This movie received an honorary Oscar in 1951 for Most Outstanding Foreign Language Film, which is widely credited with creating the category a few years later in 1956. So let's start here, Dad. This is our second Kurosawa film. We did Seven Samurai last year. What do you think is, I guess, his style? Or is there anything that you could say that, other than just simply being a Japanese film from the 1950s, that you can kind of see as a stylistic signature of Kurosawa? He seems to consistently take some element of film and tries to redefine how it is used within the concept of the film. Each time, each film, I've noticed that he's used some sort of unique plot device to further it that was not something that was typical or well-known or well-done within the Hollywood circle. And it seems that he's constantly looking for ways to tell the story in a different mode or method. I think if I consider both films, now I know this isn't completely accurate given that he also did movies like Stray Dogs that were set somewhat in the present, but he kind of genre breaks So, for all intents and purposes, Rashomon that we're discussing tonight is kind of like a courtroom drama, in a sense, that you're replaying the crime through multiple perspectives. And Seven Samurai is like a Western film, and yet they're both kind of set in this feudal time in Japan where it was a little bit more primitive. And I think part of what I was reading about this is that was intentional, from the basis that they didn't have the freedom to set things in a modern state and have it pass government censors right after the war. And so by setting these things in kind of a throwback time, if you will, it grounds these in a way that you wouldn't think of them in a traditional setting, at least not by Hollywood standards. I agree. I mean, for the most part, he's looking for plot devices that advance his story, but in a very unique method. And he, ha- but he has to do it within the confines of a a period piece because it gave him greater freedom to tell the story than if it were current. So, additionally, a couple of the things that I noticed, and we often see it with directors that are celebrated many decades later. But one of the flares that they have is usually in the cinematography. And I think there is a signature style to Kurosawa that I can see across both films, particularly in the use of lighting. But the other being that he uses the same actors at least multiple times over. And I know famously he has a collaboration with Toshiro Mifune across at least, I think, seven films, and it might even be a dozen but he becomes one of the more central figures of both this movie and Seven Samurai. And I know he's also in Yojimbo, Stray Dogs, and Throne of Blood. Well, it's in part because directors Hitchcock did the same thing. I think uh, Tarantino does the same thing. You get a rapport with an actor, and the actor learns what it is that the director is expecting. And they end up with a a communication without it being a communication. It's an implied communication. 
so you don't have to consistently reinvent the wheel for your directorial responsibilities when you're using actors who understand what your vision is. So essentially what you're saying is, like when I was in high school or college and I figured out a particular teacher's system and just started taking every one of their classes because I knew I could get an A, that's kind of what they're doing here? Correct. I did the same thing in college. (laughs) I think everybody does to a certain extent. So what is your relationship to this movie, if any? This is the first time I've seen it. The uh, only relationship I had to this is Roger Ebert did two books that were a collection of essays he had published regarding films, and Rashomon was one of the essays in his second book, and I read that piece. Now, I remember very vividly seeing this movie for the first time in my last semester of college, I think in the last few weeks before I graduated. I was in... I think the last history class I needed, it was like international or non-Western, I think African or Asian history, some something to that effect where you had to take so many classes that fit into a certain category in order to get your history minor. And for whatever reason, this was one of the last ones. But I did enjoy the instructor for that one, even though I only had her class once. But I remember doing two different projects. One was on this movie where we watched it in class and I was just astounded that this thing existed because I I just remember the discussion being incredibly lively for about a week after we'd watched it. And I was very excited to do this film again during the course of the show. But the other project was something to do with like displaying history through It's the academic word for essentially a comic book. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it it doesn't matter. Regardless, I've seen this movie now three times, the third time being this week for the show. And I had a much harder time trying to sit through this. I'm not sure if it was what was going on in my head this week or this weekend, but every time I'd sit to watch this about five minutes into the film, no matter where I had started, I would start to get really sleepy. (laughs) And I really shouldn't. I mean, that's a sad commentary on this film because I do remember enjoying it so much during college, but for whatever reason, this, this thing just, especially in the, the early portion, once we kind of got into the heart of it and we got into the bandit story and then kind of mixing the stories, I thought it picked up a lot, but that early portion of the film, I just had such a struggle trying to stay actively engaged in the movie. But that goes to, what is this movie about? And to me, this movie has always been about truth. And what is truth? And are humans capable of telling the truth? Oh, yes. Humans are capable of telling the truth. Unfortunately, the truth does not necessarily mean what actually happened. Each individual tells his truth. Interesting. You're starting to sound like a Zoomer. Well, this is what I used to tell when I did criminal defense work in a previous life, which is I would tell the clients, all right, there's your version of what happened. There's what the informant's version is of what happened. There's what the police say happened. There's what the state can prove, and there's what really happened. And none of those stories match. So on that great cliffhanger, let's give some more background on this movie. Do you have a plot summary for us? I do. A woodcutter. Takashi Shimura. And a priest. Minoru Chiaki. Are sitting beneath the Rashomon city gate to stay dry in a downpour when a commoner, Kishijiro Ueda, joins them and they begin to recount the testimony of a bandit, Tashiro Mufune, a samurai, Mayayuki Mori, and his wife, Machiko Kiyo. Each testifies about a rape and murder, with each of the three telling their own version of the story, with the teller admitting to being the murderer. The three conflicting and disturbing stories 
contradict each other to the bafflement of the woodcutter and priest. Can these stories be reconciled? And can it be determined what really happened? Thank you. Cast for this movie, Akira Kurosawa, director slash writer. Shinobu Hashimoto, co-writer. Takashi Shimura as Kikori, the woodcutter. Minoru Chiaki as Tabi Hoshi, the priest. Kishijiro Ueda as the listener or a common person. Toshiro Mufune as Tajumaru, the bandit. Mashiko Kiyo as the samurai's wife. Masayuki Mori as the samurai, the husband. Noriko Hanma as Miko, the medium. And Daisuke Kato as Hobun, the policeman. Recognition for this movie. The film was originally released in Japan on August 25th, 1950. 1950. The film performed well at the domestic Japanese box office, where it was one of the top 10 highest earning films of the year. It also performed well overseas, becoming Kurosawa's first major international hit. Rashomon famously appeared at the 1951 Venice Film Festival despite backlash from the Japanese critics and the government on the grounds that it was, quote, not representative enough of the Japanese movie industry. Despite this, Rashomon won both the Italian Critics Award and the Golden Lion Award given to the most outstanding film at the festival. Rashomon was then subsequently released theatrically in the United States by RKO Radio Pictures with English subtitles on December 26, 1951. The film won an Academy Honorary Award in 1952 for being the most outstanding foreign language film released in the United States during 1951. The current Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film wasn't introduced until 1956. The following year, when it was eligible for consideration in other Academy Award categories, it was only nominated for Best Art Direction for a Black and White Film. Rashomon currently holds a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, a 98 score on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Rashomon has gone on to have a sterling legacy among critics, appearing on all of the following greatest movie lists. It was 5th in the top 10 list in 1950 on Kinema Junpo. It was 10th on the director's top 10 poll in 1992 from Sight and Sound. It was 10th on the 100 greatest films list in 2000 by The Village Voice. 76th on the top 100 essential films of all time by the National Society of Film Critics in 2002. It was 9th in the director's top 10 poll in 2002 for Sight and Sound, as well as 13th in the critics poll during that same year. It was 290th in Empire's The 500 Greatest Movies of All Time in 2008, and it was included in 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die by Stephen J. Schneider in 2003. It was number 7 on Kinema Junpo's The Greatest Japanese Films of All Time in 2009. It was 22nd on Empire Magazine's The 100 Best Films of World Cinema in 2010. It was 26th on the critics' poll of The 100 Greatest Films of All Time for Sight and Sound Magazine in 2012, and 18th among the directors for the same year. It was 4th in the BBC's list of 100 Greatest Foreign Language Films in 2018. And finally, film critic Roger Ebert gave the film 4 stars out of 4 and included it in his Greatest Movies list. Finally, the Rashomon effect used to describe the phenomenon of the unreliability of eyewitnesses and is the situation in which an event is given contradictory interpretations or descriptions by the individuals involved and is a storytelling and writing method in cinema meant to provide different perspectives and points of view of the same incident derives its name from the film. Did you know? Rashomon is often credited as the reason the Academy created the Best Foreign Language Film category. Did you know? This film is often given credit for the first time a camera was pointed directly at the sun. In Akira Kurosawa's biography, he gives credit to his cinematographer for, quote, inventing it and himself for using it. But years later, during commentary that preceded the TV showing of the film, the head of the studio claimed credit. Kurosawa bitterly denied this claim. Did you know? During shooting, the cast approached Kurosawa en masse with the script and asked him, 
What does it mean? The answer Akira Kurosawa gave at the time, and also in his biography, is that Rashomon is a reflection of life, and life does not always have clear meanings. Did you know? Rashomon is a very early use of the handheld camera technique. This is seen when the camera follows the characters closely through the woods. Did you know? In the downpour scenes showing the Rashomon gate, Akira Kurosawa found that the rain in the background simply wouldn't show up against the light gray backdrop. To solve this problem, the crew ended up tinting the rain by pouring black ink into the tank of the rain machine. The ink is clearly visible on the woodcutter's face just before the rain stops. Did you know? Mashiko Kyo, who plays the wife character in the movie, was the last surviving member of the cast before dying in 2019 at the age of 95. <laughs> Did you know? The film consists of 407 separate shots, more than twice the number usual for a film of this length at the time. And with that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing the genre-redefining horror film Scream from 1996, directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, starring Nev Campbell, David Arquette, Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, and Rose McGowan. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, let's get back to the regular show. We have best performance up. Dad, what did you have down? Toshiro Mufune. I thought his uh, performance was by far the most memorable from the film itself. He was the character who was larger than life throughout, and he more or less controlled the flow of the film. As much as I liked him in Seven Samurai, I found him somewhat off-putting in this film, and I think it has to do with that really odd laugh that he has throughout the course of the movie. I remember it so much from Seven Samurai, but I thought he was a lot more noble character in Seven Samurai. From this, and I have a lot of potential issues with his character that will come up over time, I could see the budding star that he would become eventually, and obviously through his and Kurosawa's collective work, this is something that would become one of the defining partnerships of Japanese film through the 50s and 60s. But I don't know, there's just something I can't quite put my finger on that seems off-putting about his performance to me. I went with somebody else who I think quietly is the heart and soul of both of the films that we've discussed of Kurosawa's so far. And that's actually Takashi Shimura, who plays the woodcutter in this one, but was also the, I guess, leader of the pack in The Seven Samurai. And... I think he creates some of the emotional resonance of this film because everything I know one of the questions I'm going to ask later is whether this is a hopeful or nihilistic film, but our way or our entry point into the story is through him. Our way of understanding that there's something wrong with there being multiple versions of the story is through him. The guilt of the story is through his perspective and finally, the potential for redemption is through his character. And so, despite not having as much screen time as quite a few of the other main characters in the cast, I do think he carries the most wood in this film. Interesting concept, but yes, I can understand your point. I just, I'll stick by my original statement. I'm not asking you to move off. Didn't say you were. Best secondary performance for you? I always, I, I'm going to butcher the name. Machiko Kyo? Yeah, not bad. I, I just thought she had a lot of variation from being stoic to being fearful to being manipulative to being reticent to being, oh, what's the term I'm looking for? Well, there were at times in the film that she had to be aggressive, remorseful, guilty. Yeah, she had a, she had by far the most challenging part because she had to be different things throughout the entire. Each one of the three stories, she behaved differently from the beginning, the middle, and the end. And then each story, that beginning, middle, and end was different. 
I suppose you're right. She has the most variance between each one of the four stories that's told through the course of the film. And I guess it's something I hadn't necessarily picked up during the course of my viewing. I went with Kurosawa. I know it's kind of a cliche and somewhat of a cop-out to give it to him because I think he's celebrated across all of his movies, to be quite honest. But there are several things that are unique to this movie that I don't think are displayed in some of his later movies. This isn't as quite an action-heavy film, and it's a more cut-down cast compared to some of the other films that he had that were much bigger projects. And so, to me, this is his stamp as an artist by comparison to some of the other bigger budget films that he eventually would go on to produce, such as Seven Samurai, where you had a lot of extras and you had a lot bigger set pieces This was a very narrow and small story told by scale in a very confined department, and yet seemingly I would say, or I would put it up against something like 12 Angry Men as far as impact and the amount of backing it has for as one of the great films of all time. And I don't think that can be unrecognized. Okay. So I went with a character who might be unheralded. I actually went with Minoru Chiaki, the priest, just because I do think he is the soul of the film because it's the barometer by which everybody else has to measure their morality throughout the course of the story. He's the one that wants to be hopeful, that doesn't want to live in a hell where everybody is selfish and their truth is the only thing that matters. And thus, there has to be some level of objectivity and justice. And the way he conveys that doesn't come off as preachy to me, even though that's mentioned during the course of the film. And it also doesn't feel wasted. I don't think that he's necessarily despairing. He seemingly has a right balance for the morality of the film by which we can relate to that I think the normal human impulse is to want justice, fairness, and objectivity in a way that isn't necessarily how we often live our standards. And thus, I found him to be very charismatic during the course of this film. I went with Mufune. Whenever he's on screen, he fills the screen. He had some range of emotion, and he had to deal with Most of the action, most of the... I mean, he was directly involved in any turn or any twist within the plot. And he just carried it off. He, you know, you had a natural tendency to have your eyes drawn on him whenever he was in a scene, which to me is the definition of charismatic. And he certainly has a larger-than-life personality in most of these films that I've seen of Kurosawa's up to this point. So let's go to best scene then. And this isn't so much best scene, but rather best sequence, because it's really hard to pick out any one thing that's an individually defined scene so much as different sequences within the course of the movie. Finding the body, which I'll basically take as the first portion where they're starting to tell the story. The bandit's story. The wife's story. The samurai's story the woodcutter story, and then a kind of epilogue that I kind of nicknamed Who Took the Dagger. Any argument with those? No. I mean, that really encompasses almost the entire film just from those six. So what do you think was the best scene? The wife's story. It, for its time, portrayed women, especially from that age period, in a much different light made them seem more, I don't know how to put it exactly, there was more involved, there was more emotion, there was more raw feeling out of that scene than any of the other three. Because you felt her rage about being subjugated, being put in that position to begin with, and then being judged about something that was beyond her control. I can definitely see that. I think from 
the moral perspective though, as far as the weightier scene for me, it's probably the epilogue who took the dagger just because there's a lot wrapped up into that between the three men and kind of giving us our resolution of the film, somewhat of our cathartic move from one place to the other. Cause I do think that it moves three different ways during the course of that scene, whether it's the initial revelation of what happened to finish up the woodcutter story to then eventually who took the dagger and the baby that was also there and the other things that are wrapped up into that. So I think I would tend to lean on that because frankly, that's the scene where I nominated most of my quotes. I think it has some of the best dialogue of the film, although the film isn't overly dialogue heavy. It's a lot of visual as compared to spoken word, but Mm -hmm. I can definitely see where you went with yours. I guess it just didn't quite hit me as, as well as it must have for you. So favorite scene, I'll go with the woodcutter story. I think there is a tendency in here, and we're going to get to it with one of my remaining questions, to see the woodcutter story as the true version of the story. And I do think that every time you watch it, you might feel a little bit more conflicted or change your vision on whether that is the truest version of events. And that's, to me, why this plays out as well as it does. I think it ends up being the story we're looking for and the one that we want to resolve the action and give us the final perspective on this is what really happened. But the fact that Kurosawa never really comes out correctly and says, yes, this is the absolute version and then undercuts that character, I think that's partly why it's my favorite because I think it has a lot more impact by its not giving it the stamp of this is the official story. I also picked that. And while it may be the most plausible, it's also the most vanilla. Has the least amount of emotion, has the least amount of... I mean, people tend to make themselves the hero in their own stories. Absolutely. Even if they become the the, the ultimate villain, this thus being the murderer in this particular thing. His doesn't seem to have that agenda. So that's the that's the version we tend to congregate towards. I again, a defense attorney is a storyteller, and ultimately I look through this as through the lens of being a former defense attorney and how you would deal with this in a presentation to a jury. And I never ask my clients what really happened. I told them that if they wanted to confess, that's fine. They should probably start by seeing a priest. Otherwise, just answer the questions I have, because if I had answers to certain questions that I didn't ask, I was limited on the story I could tell. But ultimately, I never actually thought about my client's guilt or innocence, because that wasn't my responsibility. My responsibility was to provide the best defense possible. And if the system worked, then the person, if they were guilty, would be convicted. And if not, they would be acquitted. I just had to do my job expecting the prosecutor to do his or her job and the court to do his or her job. But in this particular circumstances, we want to believe the woodcutter story because it's the most innocuous of the three stories. But we can't be sure. I mean, is there pieces and parts of each of these that's true? Or do we even have a clue? And it's ultimately our responsibility to make decisions as to what the evidence shows and why we think. But even there, you look at it through the colored lens of your own experiences. I have to also say, this is probably the funniest scene out of the entire movie, from the beginning of that fight that neither of them apparently wanted to have, and they're just kind of like waving the sword and then running away from each other, I just found that very funny. Yeah. Most indelible moment for you? Actually, it was the uh, samurai's story, simply because the use of a medium, because he's dead. Having uh, 
a medium within my family. <clears throat> I always found that a little difficult to necessarily believe or follow. But uh, again, this is a very unique situation. And uh, just the whole concept that this person was able to tell an entire story based upon communication with the dead just made it more very indelible in my mind. It was also my nominee for most indelible as well, based on the fact that I think there's a cultural gap between that would be acceptable in a Western society versus there's a lot of ancestry worship and religiosity that has to deal with the dead and those that have passed on before that I don't think that we comprehend or respect. And so thus, I think it's the most striking because if you really are looking at this as a courtroom drama, it is the most inadmissible thing that would obviously be about this movie. <laughs> uh, yes. I have a comment within my current realm of legal knowledge uh, that I would love to make, but I won't. Entirely up to you. But anyway, that sounds like a good stopping point for our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Unfortunately, we do. Denise uh, Douse, American actress. She was in Beverly Hills 90210, Insecure, The Guardian, and she was in the movie Coach Carter. I believe that uh, she was one of the elder teachers in Beverly Hills 90210, but apparently she passed rather suddenly due to uh, some, what was it, like meningitis or something that came yes. on very suddenly? I know there were a lot of tributes to her because for quite a few people in the early 90s, Beverly Hills 90210 was pop culturally relevant. Yes, it was. I think certain people will know very well who she is. I unfortunately don't have much attachment. Uh, Robin Griggs, American actress, uh, primarily on uh, soap operas. She was in uh, One Life to Live, Another World, and then Zombie Geddon which I believe was a film. I couldn't find anything on that really, but uh, primarily most of her work involved being in a number of different soap operas over the years. I think One Life to Live is the one she's primarily famous for. Yeah, unfortunately it was cervical cancer, if I remember correctly. And for our listeners, please make sure you're checked annually. It is a uh, very life-consuming illness and uh, the earlier you can get it detected the better your chances of survival well with that specifically i would say isn't that the one where you can get the hpv shot and be pretty much relieved of having uh, issues with it it still does exist but your risk of cervical cancer is greatly reduced okay but it is a point in favor of inoculations yet again, at least in a conversation that we've had ongoing for the last two or three years now. Then we also lost Teddy Ray. Uh, he was an up-and-coming comic and actor. 32, he uh, drowned, uh, unfortunately, and uh, passed this week. From what I could tell, and this is just a very precursory reading of the internet, so bear with me, but... He was apparently found dead in his own pool. Yes. And so they still don't know the circumstances surrounding what may or may not have happened with that, but uh, obviously very sad for someone so young. And then lastly, Anne Heche, uh, 53, American actress. She started out on uh, daytime soap opera on Another World. Um, then she was in the movie Psycho and in the movie Donnie Brasco. She was an Emmy winner from 1991. She had a very interesting personal life, having relationships with Steve Martin and with Ellen DeGeneres, among others. 
Now, I did see that she had had some complicated issues with mental health going back to the late 90s and had been hospitalized with what she claimed at the time was something of a split personality disorder due to the abuse she suffered from her own father. Unfortunately, I don't know if that had any contributing factor towards the accident that eventually claimed her life, but it seems that she was somebody who had dealt with a lot of trauma and was very troubled, uh, and I think that's going to be the thing that probably defines her more than anything else now, instead of all of the things and the contributions that she made to film and TV over the years, because she was on a lot of different uh, TV shows even up through now, I think She's been on one of the Chicago life dramas, uh, either like PD or MD or whichever one of those shows. I haven't watched any of them. And uh, something else that was network TV show recently. So so we give all of these our thanks with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best lines then. I only have a few down and... It feels like cheating when it's the English dialogue for a Japanese film, but we're going to try our best anyway. The first one I have up from The Commoner. We all want to forget something, so we tell stories. It's easier that way. Commoner. Well, men are only men. That's why they lie. They can't tell the truth, even to themselves. Priest. That may be true, because men are weak. They lie to deceive themselves. Commoner. Not another sermon. I don't mind a lie if it's interesting. Commoner, it's human to lie. Most of the time we can't even be honest with ourselves. Commoner, women use their tears to fool everyone, even themselves. Commoner and priest, but is there anyone who's really good? Maybe goodness is just make-believe. What a frightening... Man just wants to forget the bad stuff and believe in the made-up good stuff. It's easier that way. Commoner. It sounds interesting, at least while I keep out of the rain. But if it's a sermon, I'd sooner listen to the rain. I'm out. So am I. All right. Let's go to the Stanley rubric, then. Legacy up first. I'll lead off for once. Okay, so for the industry, I don't think there's really two ways about it. I think between this, Seven Samurai, and maybe one other that I think you could have your pick between Throne of Blood, Yojimbo, maybe Hidden Fortress. This is probably Kurosawa's most known and celebrated film, if not the pinnacle of Japanese cinema. And so I think from that standpoint, from the note that you made earlier with the flashbacks, the note with all of the cinematography creations or inventions that this film has from its storytelling devicing to the fact that it has its own effect that's now actually recognized by the English Oxford Dictionary. I'm going to go with a five for industry. But the simple fact is, is I think if I said this to the average person and I remember coming home and asking you what the Rashomon effect was because it was supposedly a legal principle and you having no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> and so if you don't know that, how many people actually know about this film that aren't film nerds? Not many. Exactly. And so unless I'm going to take this to my film discussion group that probably has seen and knows more foreign films than I do. I just don't think this is resonating with the average American person in the same way that Top Gun is. So I think it gets a generous two for a seven overall. Well, you're right on with the legacy because this is a film. I mean, I, I mentioned Roger Ebert's uh, essay and talked about how this film influenced so many different films. I mean, he even mentioned some more modern films like The Usual Suspects as being based upon the same techniques. I can definitely see that. To a certain degree, you could say that both Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction borrow from this film. Yes, I think you clearly see 
the plot device is very similar. The orientation is very similar. So you had a five for industry? Yes. I wasn't quite as generous as you. I went with a 1.5 because I think you could probably ask 100 people and you might get 15 or so that would have some knowledge or have even heard of the film. I, I went with a little bit less simply because I think to some extent the public is aware of the film in general. They may not know specifics, but I gave it a 1.5. I don't know if we'd even get to 15 people, but it, it really depends. Are we asking in central Wisconsin or are we asking in Madison? <laughs> yeah. If you and I went down to State Street, we'd probably find 15 people. But if you're asking at the local watering hole in Nakusa, no one's going <laughs> to hear have heard of this film. Uh, well, first of all, they would look at me like I was like I had a third eye on my forehead. <laughs> yeah. All right. Impact <sighs> significance. I think it's actually somewhat on the same basis. There isn't much separation for this. Although I will say that for me, the audience, I think, was a little bit more aware of this film because it's 1950 and a foreign language film specifically getting sold and put out in the United States that generated $200,000 worth of profits is actually a big achievement for something at the time because uh, Americans were, well, and still are fairly myopic when it comes to other culture, particularly in entertainment. And so I gave it a five for industry, given the fact that this is one of the more celebrated festival films. It brought over and created an entire category, or is at least credited with creating the category of best foreign language film at the Oscars. It was celebrated by many, many critics at the time and many contemporary directors. So I went with a five for the industry, but I went with a three for the audience because even though it achieved some things, it doesn't meet the same heights as some of the other films from the same era that we talk about often as being some of the most celebrated of the time. So I ended up in an eight. I'm going to go impact and significance again, industry being a five for the same reasons you indicated. Now, from a public standpoint, I'm going to bring a little perception or, excuse me, a perspective uh, to this, which is I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, and I grew up with the greatest generation. And let's put it this way. There was a huge amount of anti-Japanese sentiment that existed in the United States. Primarily, it was soldiers who fought in the Western, or excuse me, in the uh, Pacific Theater, who, I mean, I remember being around individuals who had been in either the Army or the Marines during World War II in the Pacific Theater that could not even stomach watching a commercial for Toyota, which Nissan's predecessor company was Datsun. When those commercials came on, I mean, the air would be blue. How dare they try and sell cars and how dare anybody in this country buy one from that country. The fact that it drew that much in revenue with that anti-Japanese sentiment five years after the war ended is significant. So I went with a 3.5 simply because the fact that it did so well with so much anti-Japanese sentiment is quite significant. So I forgot to give the average for the first category. That was a 6.75 average between us for Legacy. For this category, we had an 8.25 between us. Novelty. We've talked a lot already about the camera perspectives, the fact that it's one of the first ones to use the quote-unquote shaky cam or the handheld as far as its structure and how it followed along behind its actors as a primary visual device. We talked about the flashbacks. We talked about the effect 
of the storytelling in different perspectives and not having any one central thing pointed to as the out and out truth. We talked about the fact that the Rashomon effect is an established Oxford Dictionary word now and has meaning behind it. I just can't see my way around given that there are so many things surrounding this film as significant from the standpoint of putting Japanese film on the map even that this has to be a 10 for me. I would agree. And I I will just point out that the use of the flashback, and this is a point that Roger Ebert made, but I went and thought about individually myself, which is flashbacks in film had been primarily subplots that were meant to advance the underlying story. If you think back to Casablanca, there were a few flashbacks, which are the flashback to Rick and Ilsa riding in the car and uh, Rick being left at the train station. They were not significant portions of the film advancing the story, but things to flesh out the underlying embitterment that Rick was feeling towards Ilsa, which was the primary portion of the film, which was present. So it has to be based upon just the sheer impact of this film on cinema in general and what was derived from it uh, has to be a 10. So that's a 10 average between us. Did you need help with the math? No, not on this one. Okay. Classicness might be a different story, though. Again, this is one where I had a lot of trouble and I felt I was kind of all over the place. Part of my difficulty with this film might be a cultural gap, more or less, that particularly the way feudal Japan viewed women is, I guess, portrayed fairly accurately, that they're property, that the honor of a woman is only established by if she's faithful to her husband, but the husband really has no obligation towards some of those things. I mean, a lot of the story plot is wrapped up in whether or not you understand Japanese culture and how women are subservient in that culture, I guess. And so that gave me a little bit of unease when it came to deciding if this is classic or not, because I guess who am I to judge Japanese culture, particularly of the 40s or 50s? And yet at the same time, it does leave me with a a kind of an odd feeling. So I'm not sure where to go with that one. I wonder how it would play out with somebody who, well, with basically an average Western viewer in a modern sense. I guess I just don't know. I also wonder how we see the complicated nature of a bandit such as Tajumaro, the Mifune character, given that there is a rape in this movie, even if it's always off screen. He's a vile, reprehensible character, and yet is likable. I mean, you nominated him for most charismatic, for God's sakes. I know. I I mean, that's that would be unheard of in a modern sense, where we would make that character much more villainous than somewhat likable. I mean, it, it just doesn't sit well with me either. But at the same time, this is also a black and white subtitled foreign film. How many people are going to buy into that concept and think that this is something that they really need to see in order to understand classic film? I mean, you could barely get people to watch black and white films, let alone black and white subtitled foreign films. So while I'm not going to hold that particularly against the film, I feel it's a nice question to raise as whether or not classicness needs to be also at sometimes mixed with rewatchability or reviewability. I'm just posting it out there. That being said, this also has quite a few notes in its favor from the techniques used to its special place in history that could give it a few legs up. So maybe it's a bit of splitting the baby, but I ended up at a seven. For me, I understand this is a period piece and it's an alternative culture, but I just had a real problem with the concept of blaming the woman for a rape. Yeah. I mean, it just, I don't care if it's 
cultural or not cultural. It's just, it's so wrong that I have a hard time just passing it off as being cultural. It's to the extent of, well, you know, slavery was popular and was the common thing down south in the 1850s, so don't worry about it. No, 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 no. You can't do that. There has to be some things that you just say, this is a line we cannot cross. And blaming a woman for an assault by a man who is stronger than her and against her will, I cannot cross, or that's a line I cannot cross, all right? That's that's the thing that I hadn't been able to verbalize, but part of my problem with this film as well. So I second that wholeheartedly. So to that extent, I went with a six because I just had to take at least three points off just for the fact that it crossed a line that I could not accept. So hold on. Let me just follow up on that then. If you're going to take three points off, where do you start from? Because I don't start from the top at 10. You used to start at a five. So that would put this at a two. Okay. So So how did you end up at a six? Okay. So I I went from the for sure fact that I went up to a, from five to an eight because it is a period piece and an alternative culture that I'm trying to understand. I went up another point simply because it did have a female lead and it did have a female lead who was a strong character and central to the story. So I went up another point. Then I went three off because it crossed a line that I could not accept. And that's where I came up with the six. So that's where I am on this. Rewatchability. I told you I had some difficulty with this, and I I don't know if it's just the first portion of the film. Like, the first half an hour is really slow and somewhat meandering before it kind of gets into the action and you have the different perspectives of the story. I think that the majority of the best parts of the movie are all in that, basically, the last hour of the movie. And... Because this is a foreign language film and it isn't something that I can put on and like I I judge and maybe this is a bad way to to put this, but I often eat most of my meals in front of the TV because I don't have anybody to talk to. So that's kind of my entertainment. This isn't something I can put on while I eat my lunch at my desk at the office because you have to be able to look up and catch all of the subtitles. So anything with subtitles, I just automatically have to rule out anytime I'm eating a meal. This is something I have to specifically set out and dedicate time to watch. Now, I'll give it bonus points for being only an hour and a half compared to, I think it was almost like four hours for Seven Samurai. But even so, I think it only ends up at a six for me just because of the barriers to entry that it has just on the front end of it. My general statement is is if it's a film i'll watch again i give it a seven for the most part i do want to follow up on that as well how many of those that you've just given a seven that you're going to go back and rewatch have you actually bothered to go back and rewatch yeah i know (laughs) um you you should write these down a few the biggest problem is is time Unfortunately, I think by the time I actually have time, I'll be senile, so... So what you mean, anytime somebody says, I just don't have time for it, what you mean is it's not a priority for you. (sighs) (laughs) Sure, thanks for phrasing it that way. I've just busted your balls. Well, anyway, I went with a 7.5 because it's a little better than average. But again, as you pointed out, this this is something you have to set aside time for. This isn't something you can just, oh, I'm skimming through the channels, and oh, look, Rashomon's on. I'll watch it for an hour. No, you just don't. Agreed. So that's a 6.7 between the two of us for the average there. I don't remember if I gave the average for classicness. It's a 6.5. For audience score, we had an 87 for Google users. We had a 93 for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 9 overall. 
So to repeat the categories, that's a 6.75 for Legacy, an 8.25 for Impact Significance, a 10 for Novelty, a 6.5 for Classicness, a 6.75 for Rewatchability, and a 9 for Audience, giving us a final total of 47.25, and placing it on the list, tied with two other movies that I don't know if I would ever put these three movies in a group together. The Grand Budapest Hotel and Home Alone. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, that's the purpose of this show is to try to place everybody on equal footing. Boy, I somewhere like Roger Ebert has to be rolling over in his grave. Can you imagine going to a film festival where the three feature films are Rashomon, Grand Budapest, and Home Alone, and then going, what do these three have in common? They're talked about by two yahoos from Wisconsin. Yes. All right, so remaining questions. I'll let you lead off. I really don't have any. I mean, I know the the biggest one is, is what's the real story? You don't know. And you never will because no one really knows the, the true story because everybody's perceiving it their own way. So, but then let's just take out whether there is a, a true version. Do you think any of them is true? I think bits and pieces are. But that's, I mean, again, when we're talking about if this is a real court case, we put it into Amer- or Americanize it so that we can understand it better. Like if we had a soundtrack now, it would be the Law and Order dun-dun. Yes. All right, now we get, we're in that mode here for you. All right. As a defense attorney, first of all, you're going to try to, you have a, a right to strike jurors as a preemptory challenge as and you can uh, remove them. And you try to remove jurors who have a belief would interpret the facts in a negative way from what you want the story to end up being. Obviously, I mean, you know, you can't use a peremptory challenge based upon an illegal means, but you can do it based on things. For example, sometimes somebody would come into it like there was an ins- they're an insurance investigator. I always struck insurance investigators because they were in the business of trying to to review testimony and stories and come up with a conclusion. Well, you don't want that because then you're basically trying the case to one person instead of 12. So this is a situation where there's probably bits and pieces that are accurate. My guess is is the woodcutter's version may be the more accurate, but I don't necessarily believe it's the actual reality or what actually took place. I think it might be the most likely and most plausible. And when you look at the basis of each of the three stories, it's the one that has the least motive reach a conclusion that would not be favorable to the storyteller. I could buy into that. I guess the only other question I would have is... Whether this is a nihilistic film, a pragmatic film, or a hopeful film, I think you could take any one of those from the last scene and make a fairly convincing argument on any of them. And so I guess I'll ask you this. Which camp do you fall in? Pragmatic. I have no choice. It's my training and experience because I always looked at these as being pragmatic because I didn't want to know the answer. The answer came from the jury. It was an acquittal or it was a conviction. If it was a conviction, my client did it because I had no choice but to believe that's the case. I put my trust in a 12-person jury to come up with a conclusion. I may not like the answer. and In fact, I may disagree with it at the time, but ultimately I resolved to follow what the jury's determination was. Fair. I can't really argue with that. I mean, I'd like to believe it's hopeful, but this 
movie takes its time in really making you see a nihilistic picture. And I tend to be a little bit more pragmatic toward it as opposed to believing that all men are evil or dirty or self-interested. I think there are always motivations that are selfish, but that isn't necessarily everybody's first motivation. And does that make me hopeful? Not necessarily. There are still plenty of bad people that have really bad intentions and will do terrible things. But it also doesn't define everybody unilaterally either. And so I guess I would probably fall in the pragmatic camp too. Maybe is somewhat of a cop-out, but I definitely don't fall in the hopeful camp. And I really push back on trying to be nihilistic. Just the fact that there are people who question what took place prevents it from being nihilistic. Fair enough. All right, final thoughts for the week. Well, as I was talking to you earlier today, next week we have Scream, and this will be the second true horror film I've seen in my life. I went and saw Friday the 13th, the original film. I want to say it was 1978 or 79. Saw it at the theaters, and uh, that's the only other true horror film I've seen. It'll be broadening my horizons. Well, it's an area that we definitely wanted to get into with the show. We said that animation, comedy, horror, some of these subgenres that don't often get mentioned with the greatest movies of all time needed their inclusion. And so we created the rubric as a fair barometer on all of them that didn't just take into effect like awards and recognition, even though. For the first like five episodes, we we made that a category. And so I think it's good that we're branching out. I would define this maybe broadly as the third horror film that we're doing on the show, given that we had a fairly lively discussion on whether Jaws was a horror film or not. And I would encourage people to listen to that episode. I thought it turned out well. And we also did Psycho, which I think by most people's definition would also be a horror film. And so this would be our third one. But this is going to be unlike anything that we've discussed before. This is among the modern horror classics and a horror franchise that's been present. And I think I just made a sequel maybe last year or earlier this year. So this is something that's still living. It has relevance to the modern pop culture. And it's definitely something away from the older horror classics that we've seen or discussed before on the show. This to me is not anything that could be deemed a thriller. This is straight slasher horror. At least that's my impression going in, not knowing much about the franchise. I concur, I guess. So it'll be interesting to see, especially because we're bringing on a guest who's very enthusiastic about the genre to see what their perspective is and what they can really bring to change how you and I would look at it in a genre that we don't often personally just go out of our way to watch. You you and I are not horror movie watchers most of the time. And I would say that we don't do it for entertainment or fun. This is an exercise where we need to broaden our own horizons, which at times is necessary in, in the pursuit of the show. Well, it's not just in pursuit of the show. I oftentimes find it fascinating try to understand somebody who has a passion for something that I don't or that I don't understand or appreciate and just to see why and to try to understand and glean. Because quite frankly, I have a real admiration for people who have passions about certain things, especially things that I don't necessarily understand or appreciate. And so, to that extent, I'm, I'm looking forward to the show next week. Agreed. So that's a good place to stop for this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special. Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing the genre-redefining horror film, Scream, from 1996, directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, starring Nev Campbell... David Arquette, 
Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, and Rose McGowan. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.